Greetings, dear listeners. Thomas Gloom here. What you are about to hear is my personal favorite story from Michael R. Goodwin's newest collection, How Good It Feels to Burn. I've always been fascinated with photography. There is something magical about being able to capture a specific moment in time to be viewed over and over again. When I was in high school, I took a photography class and actually got to develop my own film in a classic darkroom setting. Up to that point, my only knowledge of darkrooms came from a scene in Ghostbusters 2. So a certain feeling of unease always accompanied me when I stepped into that small area that was lit dimly with red tinted bulbs. Mystery and intrigue encapsulated the seconds as I watched white photo paper slowly reveal an image once it was plunged beneath a chemical bath. It was also around this time that I first saw the hauntingly morbid film One Hour Photo with Robin Williams. I guess you can say I've got a certain level of fascination with the darker side of photography and film development, which is the exact vibe Goodwin has captured in his short story, Existence. I've referred to it as a more mature version of R.L. Stein's Say Cheese and Die, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So settle back and let this spooky story envelop you. And please, remember to leave a light on. Existence by Michael R. Goodwin Read by Thomas Gloom I've been taking pictures for most of my life. I suppose I got to be pretty good, considering how long I've been at it, but I wasn't always. It's a hobby I've enjoyed ever since I got my first camera when I was 10 years old. A Kodak 110 Instamatic. It was a hand-me-down from my father, and I was fascinated by it. With a button click, I could make any moment exist permanently. I could capture anything I wanted through that viewfinder. While most of my first pictures came out blurry once the roll got developed, sometimes there were a few good ones. But being good at it was never the goal. As a child who felt largely invisible, even if the picture was blurry, it was proof that, at least in that moment, I existed. I never threw a single picture away. The good ones went into an album, and everything else went into a shoebox. When my parents brought my sisters and me visiting to extended family, I would bring my album along to show any grandparent, aunt, or uncle who'd humor me. See this picture? I would say. I took that. I was there. They would nod their heads, give me some platitude to appease me, while only half-looking, flipping quickly through the pages. No one ever got to the end before handing it back to me, usually with a forced smile and a tousle of my hair. Very nice, they'd say. The next Ansel Adams, an uncle once said. I didn't know what or who an Ansel Adams was, but I knew bullshit when I smelled it. No one, not even my parents, could feign interest long enough to get to the end. If they had... 
they would have seen the man in the black hat. He showed up in the first cartridge of 110 I ever shot on my dad's old Instamatic. I spent that first cartridge up on the same day my dad gave me the camera. I worked extra chores over the next week, a condition set by my mother in order to get the photos developed by the one-hour photo booth at the drugstore down the street. The day she brought them home, I was shaking with excitement. She handed me the sealed paper envelope, and I ran into my room, clutching it to my chest, not wanting to share this moment with anyone. Sitting on my bed, I gently opened the envelope. Like nesting dolls, inside was a smaller envelope, and inside that were the photos I took, a paper divider separating the prints from the negatives. With great reverence, I pulled out the stack of pictures, carefully avoiding the glossy image with my sweaty fingertips. I was disappointed to discover that just about all of them were garbage. My pinky finger was obscuring the lens for a majority of them, a fleshy blob that hid two-thirds of the frame. For the handful that didn't feature my digit, you couldn't tell what the subject was through the blurriness of the shot. I sifted through the stack of photos, crestfallen, ready to pitch the entire stack into the trash can, my camera along with it. But then, I came across one picture that was actually something. It was the last one in the stack. A simple shot of our cat, Sissy, sitting on our front porch. Looking at the photo brought back the memory that had forever been attached to that moment. The warmth of the sun on my back. The undulating motion of the tall grass in my neighbor's field in the background. The sound of my parents arguing inside. Their arguing was why I had gone outside with my camera in the first place. It was by no means a perfect shot, but I took it. I was there. I admired my photo, proud of what I had captured, absently flicking my thumb on the corner of the photo. The corner split as there was one last picture stuck to the back. I remembered then how I had tried to take a follow-up shot of Sissy just seconds after the first one, but she moved as I pressed the shutter. I peeled back the corner of the final print, expecting this last shot to be a calico blur, another print for the garbage can. Instead, I was dumbstruck by what I saw. The print showed the tall grass of my neighbor's field, the blue sky above streaked with clouds. In the field, amongst the swaying grass, stood a man wearing a black hat. I brought the print up to my face for closer inspection, breath caught in my throat. It was difficult to make out much detail, so I got up from my bed and grabbed a science kit I had been given for my last birthday. The experiments had been crap, the magnifying glass the only part worth keeping. The man's face was obscured by shadow. Even under magnification, I couldn't make out anything more than grainy darkness. He wore an old-fashioned suit, congruent with the style of chapeau he wore, and there was a red pocket square nestled in the breast pocket of his jacket. He stood with his arms at his side, hands balled up into fists, and was slightly transparent. I could see stalks of grass showing through him. I let out a ragged breath, 
fear and adrenaline running through my juvenile heart. Who was this man? Why wasn't he in the previous picture, the one with Sissy? I held up the picture of our cat next to the picture of the man, comparing them. From where he stood, even through the narrow view of the camera lens, he should have been present in both shots. Except he wasn't. I was an observant boy and felt confident that I would have noticed him in that field. I gathered up the other prints that I had set aside, wondering if he had made it into any of the other shots I took that day. He was only in that one final shot. I picked up his photo, unable to take my eyes from him. The more I looked at the man, the more unsettled I became. How'd your pictures come out? My father asked that night at dinner. Not that great, I said truthfully. He laughed. <laughs> Taking pictures takes a steady hand and lots of practice, he said. The advice obvious and one roll of film too late. I'm sure at least one of them came out good. Two of them, actually, I thought. There was one, a picture of Sissy. My sisters squealed in delight at the mention of their cat's name. I pulled the photo out of my back pocket and held it out for my family to see. My mother smiled in silent approval. My older sister snatched the photo from my grasp and huddled over it with my younger sister, both of them cooing excitedly. My father clapped me on the shoulder in the way that dads do. That's a great picture, son. Overcome with pride, an emotion I rarely felt, I forgot all about the man and the black hat. The next day, I found Sissy laying on the ground at the edge of my neighbor's field. She was dead. Her eyes were wide, frozen open in rigor, claws extended and back arched. Tall grass had been shoved down her throat, her belly bulging out like she had been stuffed with it. Something else was sticking out of her mouth. Something red. I tugged on it and found it was a pocket square, soaked in Sissy's bile and blood. The man in the black hat had killed my sister's cat. There was no doubt in my mind. I began to cry, for I was still a boy, and I was afraid. I felt badly for my sisters, whom I knew would be devastated especially if they saw the gruesome nature in which their beloved cat had been killed. I buried the cat deep in the woods, far beyond the tree line where it was dark and the ground was damp, where I knew neither of my sisters would ever go. My sisters mourned the loss of their cat, whom they thought had just run away, while I silently kept the truth to myself. The burden of what had happened to their cat got easier to carry as time went on, as most secrets do. Over the next several years, I used my father's Instamatic to take dozens of rolls of pictures. As my skill improved, more of my photos wound up in albums instead of in that shoebox stashed in my closet. Photos of the man in the black hat went into my albums too always on the back pages, where no one ever looked. He appeared in the very last shot of every role I took. It was different every time, but he was always there. Sometimes just his face, 
Other times you could see his slender frame standing off in the distance. One thing was constant. He was always wearing that hat, and his face was always hidden in shadows. Many rolls of film were shot in pursuit of coming within a mile of an Ansel Adams quality photograph. I looked him up in my school's library to understand the patronizing remark my uncle made. I shot several rolls of film on just my neighbor's field, trying to capture him, and only ever succeeding in the last frame. Nothing bad happened, not for a long time, but then the man in the black hat began appearing in photos with my family. He was outside a nearby window as my older sister blew out birthday candles. He was on the steps of our church on Easter morning, standing terrifyingly close to my mother in her Sunday best. He was in the passenger seat of my father's midlife crisis purchase, his precious cherry-red 1970 Corvette. He was hiding behind the door in my younger sister's bedroom as she posed for a homemade glamour shot. Each time, I could hear his voice whispering in my head. Whispering the same thing that I used to say as a boy. See this picture? He would ask. I was there. I was there. For that reason, I stopped taking pictures of my family and made sure I was always behind the camera, never in front of it. When I turned 16, I got a job at the one-hour photo store, which made developing my prints more affordable. The money I earned allowed me to afford a 35mm Nikon, a purchase I made after my father's old Instamatic eventually gave out. I was hopeful that the man in the black hat would be gone from my photos now that I was behind a different lens. I spent that first roll of film taking pictures of my neighbor's field to find out. I pressed the shutter two dozen times, a hot pit in my stomach as I watched the tall grass sway in the breeze. At my next shift at the photo lab, I developed the roll. I grabbed them off the machine, not looking at them until I brought them out to my car on my break. I quickly saw that I was foolish to hope he was gone. There he was, just as he had been the first time I saw him, in the middle of my neighbor's field. He looked the same as ever, except now he was in the very first shot. He had never appeared in the first photo before. My skin broke out in goose flesh. I didn't want to see the rest, but I knew I had to look. With each print, the man in the black hat got closer. Halfway through the stack, he had made it across the field, standing where I had found my sister's cat at the edge of the field. Over the next 12 frames, he got closer still. The closer he got, the shadow covering his face disappeared. It disappeared because I realized now that he was closer, that he never had a face. Where his face should have been, the glossy print I held in my hands showed an empty cave filled with shreds of brain and viscera. A pool of thick fluid gathered in the depression of his lower jaw, his tongue crawling with maggots. The glass of my new camera lens showed me this in superb clarity and color. 
I immediately felt my mouth begin to seethe, bile rising into my throat. I threw open the door to my car, leaned out, and vomited in the parking lot. See this picture? I was there. I didn't take a single picture for the next few months. I couldn't bring myself to even pick up my camera. I didn't want to so much as even look at it, so I put it up on a shelf in my bedroom. I didn't want to see the man in the black hat ever again. I was at work one day when my older sister came into the store. I was hauling a load of chemicals on a dolly out from the back room, and I saw her filling out a one-hour photo slip. She was also a bit of a photo bug, but she had never used my dad's Instamatic, I made damn sure of that. She had her own camera, a thrift store Pentax. She dropped her roll of film in the envelope, placed it on the photo counter, and tossed me a wave as she left. It was not unusual for her to have me develop her pictures. She always told me I did a better job. I prepared her negatives and put them into the machine to be processed. Within 15 minutes, her prints began to cascade down from the top of the machine. I stopped in my tracks when I saw the man in the black hat. Picture after picture came down, and he was in every single one. I ran to the phone and called my sister. Did you use my camera? I asked as soon as the line picked up. It's polite to let someone answer the phone by saying hello before you start. Shut up and answer the question, I yelled, cutting her off. Did you use my camera? The one up on the shelf in my bedroom. Yeah, what's the big deal? You never use it anymore, and I had a school project. The rest of what she said was lost under the sound of my pulse in my ears. I turned to the photo machine, prints of the man in the black hat dropping down one at a time. I hung up, unsure of what to do next. I decided to shred the prints not wanting my sister to ever see that man. As I was passing the last one through the shredder, a trio of fire trucks sped by. I knew exactly where they were going by the sense of dread I felt pass through me. The fire chief said my older sister died of smoke inhalation, but we all could smell her burning flesh lingering in the air. They said she knocked over a candle in her bedroom, and it was odd how the fire was completely contained to her room. We should be thankful that her life was the only one we lost that day. The fire chief was right. She was the only life we lost. That day. My mother died a month later. After a homeless man she found sleeping on the steps of her church stabbed her in the stomach. My father went two weeks after that in our garage Choking on a hose, he ran from the tailpipe of his prized Corvette. My younger sister and I, not only emotionally destroyed by storm of death in our home, but now orphaned, went to live with our grandparents. She only made it a week in the spare room at my grandparents' house before she ran away. The detectives who called my grandparents a week later said they found her in an alley, dead from an apparent overdose. Everyone who mourned with me, strangers and extended family alike, said that I had the worst luck, losing my family in the way I did. I never knew how to respond to that. The only thing I knew was that it wasn't bad luck. 
It was the man in the black hat. When I turned 18, I requested copies of all the crime scene photos taken when each of my family members died. I was warned against it, but I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was going to see. In the photographs taken in my older sister's bedroom, wallpaper scorched and everything scorched black, there it was, the burnt remnants of a pocket square, clutched in her hand, her body cooked through to the bone by the fire. It may have been black from being burned, but I knew it was red underneath. In the photograph taken at the church, my mother lying face down in a pool of her own blood, her intestines spilled out like a grotesque tangle of snakes, there it was, a red pocket square, sticking out the homeless man's knapsack. In the photograph of our garage, I spotted the red pocket square stuffed around the tailpipe, creating the perfect seal to deliver the carbon monoxide through the garden hose. My father's face bloated and mottled from decay. In the photograph taken in that dark, dirty alley, I saw the red pocket square under an empty vodka bottle, barely in the corner of the frame. A used syringe lay in my sister's limp hand, and a rat was making a snack out of her nose. I was there, the man in the black hat was telling me. I was there. See that picture? I was there. After he took my entire family from me, starting with my sister's cat, the man in the black hat didn't show up in pictures again for a long time. That's mostly because I allowed for half a decade to pass from the time the last of my family was put in the ground before I took another photograph. On that day, I reluctantly pressed the shutter on my camera. Only once, and then drove to the one-hour photo store where I used to work. I waited for it to be ready out in the parking lot. He wasn't there. He wasn't in any of them nor any of the thousands of photos I have taken over the years since. Not the last frame, not the first frame, not any in between. I'm an old man now, my life elapsing while I try to forget about the man in the black hat and what he took from me. He took more than my family. He took my ability to ever feel at rest. Along the way, I married, and we had two children. I never took pictures of them, for fear that the man in the black hat would come for them too. I took pictures of everything else. Empty rooms, fields of tall grass, landscapes, flowers, mountains. But never a single frame containing a human being. That seemed to be enough to keep the man in the black hat away. I've got a closet full of shoeboxes each of them bursting with prints that prove the thing that I've been chasing my entire life, that I exist. All of the garbage shots that I could never bring myself to throw away, they are my secret evidence that I look back on whenever I begin to doubt myself, proving to myself that I was there then, and that I'm still here now. I've got bookshelves full of photo albums containing the pictures that made the cut, I've even had a few prints featured in galleries. I visited one once and saw my print next to an Ansel Adams. See that picture? I took that. I was there. Take that, uncle.
I never did forget about the man in the black hat. He stayed away long enough for me to feel like he had gotten everything he had wanted from me. Long enough for me to think that maybe he had forgotten about me. I was wrong. Yesterday, my wife called for me from our living room. I went to her and saw that she had spread out most of my photo albums on the floor. She held one and pointed to a picture on the last page. Who's the man in this picture? she asked. I looked over her shoulder at the photo. It was of a barn window, faded curtains tied off on the sides. There was no man in the picture. It was just a simple exposure, taken without any thought or preparation nearly forty years prior, not long after we married. I leaned in to look closer. Like a developing Polaroid, the image slowly became clearer. The man in the black hat. Nearly invisible, but there. He stood behind the window, his narrow frame filling the space visible behind the curtains. He's in a lot of them, you know. Your photos. Who is he? She asked again. I didn't respond. I had to see for myself. The albums she had spread out spanned the last few decades. I picked them up at random, quickly flipping through the pages. Photos of empty rooms, fields of tall grass, landscapes, flowers, mountains. See that picture? I was there. I went upstairs to my closet and took down an armful of shoeboxes. I dumped them out one by one, spreading the photographs across the coverlet. The man in the black hat was there, in nearly all of them. I don't know how I missed it. I supposed I was so eager to not see him that part of my mind simply chose not to. The reality was that he had followed me through my camera lens the entire time, through my entire life. I sat down on the cedar chest at the foot of my bed, my old heart misfiring. I reached for my cell phone, an iPhone that my son insisted I get because he thought it took great pictures. My hands were shaking, and I dropped it. As I fumbled to catch it, I accidentally launched the camera app. I heard my phone make a fake shutter sound that indicated it had taken a picture before clattering onto the floor. I leaned down and picked up my phone. I opened the gallery app to delete the photo, trying not to look at it. My finger hovered over the delete button when I saw something under my foot. A red pocket square. I looked at the picture on my phone because I knew I had to. It was of me, as I suspected it would be. The only picture of a human being I had taken in 60 years, and it was of my own damned self. In the photo, the man in the black hat stood behind me. His face, that wasn't a face, hovering near my left ear. And he wasn't just in the photograph. He was standing right next to me. I could smell the putrid waste that filled his empty skull. See that? He whispered. I am here. He evaporated into a black cloud when I turned to face him. I know he'll come back, because he was never gone. He was always there, just as much as I was. He'll come back. 
and I know just how to summon him. I've set up my camera on my dresser. The blinking red light on the front says its timer is counting down. I am now standing in front of the lens, ready for my own final shot. See that picture? I took that. I was there. This story appears in Michael R. Goodwin's short story collection, How Good It Feels to Burn, from Dark Pine Publishing. Copyright 2021. It was used here with the permission of the author and publisher.